Yo, what up, everybody? Grady Show on Dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studio. It's Monday, January something or another, 17th or 18th, I guess. I don't know, man. I'm recording this at 9.35 a.m. because I don't have to work today. So I'm loaded up on coffee and no hams in the morning, you know. I don't usually drink before 10 a.m. Well, usually. <laughs> I just listen. There's no booze. There's no booze in the podcast studio right now. I want to hang out with my daughter today. My wife and I are both off of work. So, you know, I'm going to, yeah, we're going to do stuff with the daughter. I'm going to pull her around on her wagon. I built her a wagon for Christmas. I'm super excited about that. So, yeah, we've been cruising in it a little bit, you know, and it's cold outside. But my daughter can handle it. She's like one of those football players that doesn't wear long sleeves when it's like 10 degrees outside. You know, so you sort of got to toughen her up a little bit. But she seems to love it, man. She's she's a tough kid. And she doesn't really care to be cold. And she loves her wagon. So, you know, that's what we're going to do. So... It's going to be a good day. So loaded up on a record amount of coffee right now. I'm sweating so hard under my armpits. I'll tell you this. I started using all natural deodorant. Yo, it ain't worth a shit. <laughs> it smells good, but it does not keep me from sweating, man. But I'm a pretty high strung wild guy. So I'll deal with the deodorant because they say those normal deodorants, you know, might give you like Alzheimer's and stuff. And I forget everything as is. So it's like, yeah, I got an all-natural deodorant, man, but it's having to work like triple time right now. But it's um, it's a good feeling, a good coffee buzz. You can't beat it, you know? Like baseball players in the 70s when they would go to the clubhouse and there would be two coffees, one labeled leaded and one labeled unleaded. And the unleaded coffee was just like your normal Maxwell House or Folgers, whatever was thick and black in the the old bun coffee maker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Dude, those are – listen, man, I've had a couple jobs where they would have those old school bun coffee makers in the break room. You know what I mean? And they're not clear anymore because they've just had so much caffeine coffee sludge in them. They're just a natural tint of brown. But you know when you get coffee out of one of those son of a bitches, like you're dude, it's gonna be a hell of a ride for the day. And but then the you know, back in the old school baseball days, when it was the leaded coffee, they would just straight up crush greenies up. And greenies are just speed, right? They brought the greenies over. I think Ted Williams, man, was one of the first guys to just load up on greenies because all those guys went to World War II. And you know, you if you're in war, man, you need some alertness. And, you know, a five-hour energy is just not going to do the trick. So they would just give these guys speed. And when they all came back from war, they were like, well, this speed is pretty fucking good. Let's go play some baseball on speed. So with the coffee, they would just crush up the greenies and, you know, sprinkle it in the coffee or probably dump it in the coffee. So when you drink that stuff, you're really good and going. And <laughs> so that's sort of, um, sort of how I feel right now, man. But there's no greenies right in the coffee. It's just, I drink my coffee. It's just like pure mass, man. Like just a gallon of coffee. You know, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt drank a gallon of coffee a day. A gallon of coffee. Like, I think health experts recommend you drink a gallon of water. I don't know what the fuck they would say about a gallon of coffee, man. They might just be like, you need to go to a specialist to get your heart checked out because we got all kinds of problems here. But you make coffee with water, so I don't really see what the problem is here. You know what I mean? I think coffee is just flavored water, and it's all one and the same. Who really knows? But listen, man, exciting news, right? Uh, Rob Manfred, oh, Robbie said that in 2021, he told all the Major League Baseball teams to 
expect for spring training to start on time and that we would get 162 games of Major League Baseball. I am so excited. It's been so long since I've went to a baseball game and got hammered drunk on $10 Miller Lights and had to ask my wife to drive home because I got a little too excited, right? And I just can't wait for that to happen. Now they say, dude, I'm gonna, the first chance I get, I just... I can only imagine, man, the second I walk up to the counter going to my first baseball game in over a year, I'm probably going to order 10 hot dogs, and the the person at the counter is going to say, well, we really don't do party orders here for big groups. You need to contact this other department. I'll say, no, this is for me. I need all these hot dogs, all the mustard and ketchup you got, and really all the beer you got, man, because I'm not looking to walk away from this. I've already let my wife know, first baseball game we go to, she's driving home because I'm probably going to be asleep by the seventh inning because I've eaten so much food. It's going to be like Thanksgiving. But right now, let me um, let me redirect. So they um, Major League Baseball, they've said that they won't mandate required vaccines to go to a baseball game, but I believe in certain states or they might, certain states you might have to or they will leave that in the team's hands. <laughs> if... If they have to inject me with a vaccine to go to a Major League Baseball game, because I have not been to a Major League Baseball game two years, and I know this vaccine hasn't been tested, right? The news, whatever, says they test vaccines for like 10 years, and they do all these studies and stuff like that. And if they're like, Quentin, we just made this vaccine like last week, and we got to inject you with it. If you want to go to a baseball game, I'm going to look at them and say, which fucking arm, you know what I mean, man, like, I don't care, inject me with whatever you got, I will ask no questions, because I just need to get into the baseball game and see a live baseball game in a live field, right, but listen, I'm going to tell you this right now, is that vaccine going to do more damage to my body than the excessive amount of beer I'm going to drink when I get in the ballpark, absolutely not, right, that vaccine is going to be flowing through my veins, doing its job, and then when the influx of $10 Miller Lights just flow through my system and hit my liver, and my liver goes into a full fucking panic, that vaccine's gonna go, what the fuck is going on, and it's just gonna run, man, so there's just no way, like, I feel like the booze will coat my interior and protect me from all of the negative side effects of the vaccine. And it's like, whatever. Will the vaccine take 10 years off my life? Probably. But if you factor in that the booze is going to take 15 off, it, they cancel each other out, I'm pretty sure, man. So, like, I just want to go to a ball game at all. So, like, I just, I mean, I, I don't care. I don't care if a fucking horn grows out of my forehead, right? Or if I, like, get a weird third arm or something like that. Because all that means is I can hold my flamethrower two, with two hands and then hold my daughter with the other arm, right? These are all great things to have. Like, I love it. And I just, I need, I need to go to a baseball game. It's just really bad. So, yeah, whatever the drugs are, man. Like I said, Major League Baseball is not going to, like, I don't think make it mandatory or whatever, but, bruh, like, I need to go to a game, so just shoot me up, man, because there's no way, dude. I've I've done a lot worse. Think about it, man. Like, I really miss going to live baseball games. Like, it's been forever that, you know, I've seen just a field that green, right? And, you know, remember the first time you went to a baseball game, I think it might be the same with everybody. It was for me. 
when you walk up the steps and you see the baseball field, and it's just this beautiful thing, and it's perfectly manicured, the foul lines, the green grass, you know, the outfield stands, and then you see, like, your your favorite major league ball players in person, and you're sort of just like, wow, like, here I am. I didn't know if these people were real or not, right? They had these millionaire baseball players who play, you know, sort of a kid's game for a living, and they're so rich, right, they could buy a DeLorean and an Elon Musk flamethrower every week if they wanted to, right? So there's just like, I always had that disconnect as a kid where I was like, yo, these are these baseball players on these cards, but are they really real or not? I don't know, but to see them in person is amazing, and I wonder because it's been so long since any of us have really been to a live baseball game, if it's going to be like that when we go back. And I would imagine it is. I mean, I just cannot wait. And what's crazy is my daughter's never been to a baseball game as well. And I mean, she loves people and loves the outdoors and, you know, loves to eat. So (laughs) she might be right up there with me, man. But I cannot wait to go to a game. I really do miss it. And I, I would imagine, I don't know what ballpark I would go to first, being in North Carolina, maybe I would have to go watch a Braves game or an Orioles or a Nationals game or something like that. I really don't know. But to be honest with you, there are a lot of minor league ballparks close by too. I just honestly want to see someone play baseball, <laughs> right? Like, let's go, dude. Um, so that's exciting news, man. That's exciting news. So I um, But I have been watching a lot of old school baseball on YouTube, right? So I'm watching a game right now. It's a really good game. It's from 85, and it's the Braves and the Expos. And you get into some, bro, really, really good teams. Those Braves teams of the 80s, yo, rugged. You had a Dale Murphy. You had Bob Horner, who is an absolute legend. If you don't know about Bob Horner, listen to Bob Horner. First of all, oh, Bobby, he, he was a husky little guy, and he had sort of a curly mullet fro that stuck out the side of his hat, right? And that's the number one thing you look for. Also a stellar stash. Now, what's cool about Bob Horner is he was drafted number one overall in 1978 out of Arizona State. Uh, he was a Sun Devil, wherever the Sun Devils are. That's Arizona State, I believe. And so he was drafted. It was a June summer draft. Well, the plan was always to send Bob Horner to the minors. You know, you go through the routine, the player's ready in about a year and a half or two years. Well, turns out about 10 days after Bob Horner was drafted, they sent him straight to the Atlanta Braves. He went straight from college to the pros, never, ever played minor league ball, which is so badass, right? Because they were like, he was number one overall pick. They were like, this guy's a can't-miss prospect, and honestly— if it wasn't for injuries, he'd be a 500 home run guy probably because he was just built to bash balls, right? So his first major league game is against the Pittsburgh Pirates and Burt Blylevin, right? Future Hall of Famer. I love to fart Burt Blylevin. He is, he's pitching on the mound, man. Bob Horner, two-run jack. Hits a two-run homer off of Burt Blylevin. Future Hall of Famer in his first game after getting drafted and going straight to the pros, dude. Like, what a rad thing. Like, I envision it in my head now. Bob Horner, big curly fro, curly mullet, stellar stash, husky build, man. He gets drafted by the Atlanta Braves out of Arizona State. He road trips from Arizona to Atlanta in his his Trans Am with the big firebird on the hood. You know what I mean? Black and gold. He's got a, he's got a case of Schlitz riding shotgun with him, man. And he's listening to Freebird the whole entire ride, man. That is 70s to a T. And if you look at Bob Horner and just look at how he looked, you're like, 
that's probably pretty accurate, right? That he was probably just pounding Schlitz and the Trans Am on his way to Atlanta, gets out of the car, and hits a home run off a future Hall of Famer. <laughs> Legit, dude. And But other guys on those old 80s Braves team, dude, they got a pitcher named Terry Forster who was, man, Terry Forster, I don't really... It, dude, he looked so rugged. He had a big old belly on him. Just unkempt hair, man. Big beards. That's how a lot of those guys were, man. Um, but Terry Forster dude, was so legit. I think he actually wrote a song called I Like Being Fat <laughs> because as he got older in the major leagues, you know, he really put on some husky weight, man. And it's just crazy to watch these old 80s games. And you got guys today, no disrespect, but they're they're doing Pilates, they're eating kale, they're working out nonstop, and they go on the disabled list sometimes for like a strained thumb or something, which is really weird. But then you got guys back then who didn't even work out at all. They would come to spring training legit out of shape, probably because they had been drinking and smoking all off season. And that's how, man, yeah, guys would have to come to spring training and be like, oh, I got to get in fucking shape. I put on 30 pounds in the off season. And then the coaches would look at him and say, Jesus Christ, man, are you okay? Like, did you hit rock bottom or something over the winter? What happened, man? And that's what a guy like Terry Forster looked like, man. Just big gut, long hair. He looked like the embodiment of a country boy can't survive from Hank Williams Jr. Dude, just so legit. And you look at him and you're like, yo, he can pitch, right? But the look of him, he looks like a guy that works at a roadside mechanic shop when you're somewhere between Tennessee and Florida and you really don't know where because you're on your way to spring break and... You have to stop because whatever your your whatever car you drive in college, right? Your uh, Ford Probe or some shit like that. Your Mitsubishi 3000 GT busted a tire, and you know Terry Forster looks like a guy who just you know changes oils and fix tires and alternators all day, and then. He might be a little sketchy. You don't really know. He's got alcohol on his breath, but you're sort of okay with it because you have somewhere to go and you really need your car fixed. But he can pitch, man, and it's a beautiful thing, dude. It's all those 80s Braves teams, oh, man. They look yo, they look rugged. They look tough. They look like they've served time in county, right? <laughs> but it's just so fun to watch, dude. And also Rick Mailer. Oh, Rick Mailer, legit pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Dude, he was their opening day starter for a lot in the 80s, and he was a damn good pitcher, but you would never know it because he pitched on bad teams, dude. But these guys for sure look like they just, you know, drive Ford F-100s on the farm, dude, load some manure, kill a deer, throw it over their back. <laughs> Fucking great. But check this out, man. I, um, I got to talk about something here a little bit. I was in the kitchen. It was like 11 o'clock at night, and I'm watching the Expos Braves game. And my wife walks downstairs, and she sees me. Now, here's it is. I'm at the sink. I'm at the counter, the island. They call it an island, right? I'm at the island making a sandwich. Now, my wife comes down, and she sees the bread out. I eat Wonder Bread. She sees Miracle Whip because I'm not a mayonnaise guy because I'm a Miracle Whip guy. Now, a lot of people are passionate about mayonnaise and Miracle Whip. Now, I love Miracle Whip, right? I, I like mayonnaise, okay, but I'm a Miracle Whip, Vienna Sausage, McDonald's, boil your hot dogs guy if I have to be. <laughs> not really. No, I don't boil my hot dogs. But you've heard me talk about my food preferences, right? If it can be microwaved, I'm going to do it, right? So I'm downstairs basically making Miracle Whip sandwiches. And she walks downstairs and she looks at the scene and she sees the bread. She sees the Miracle Whip, but she doesn't see any meat. 
She looks at me. She goes, what the fuck are you doing, man? Is this what I think it is? And I immediately start laughing because I've been busted making Miracle Whip sandwiches. And what I do is I take two pieces of bread and I put Miracle Whip on half of each piece of bread. Then I fold each piece of bread in half for a delicious little tangy zippy snack and i love it i love a miracle whip sandwich there i said it if you've got to shut the podcast off i understand but i love a miracle whip sandwich and my wife she was like you're gross man you're disgusting she was why would you do that are you in prison have you been to prison you know we have food in this house there are oranges and leftover chicken pot pie in the fridge but i had a hankering for a Miracle Whip sandwich. And I've honestly caught a lot of flack for it. I don't know if we're going to have to go to marriage counseling or not, but she doesn't trust me anymore. She says she doesn't trust people that like Miracle Whip sandwiches that would just put Miracle Whip on bread and eat it. But I love the taste of it. Like, I'm sorry that that's the case, but for one, that's usually my nightly routine. About 10, 11 o'clock, I'll hunch over the sink, eat whatever food's in the house, and watch my baseball games on my phone or my iPad. And that's what I so happen to do tonight. And, you know, I can eat six, eight Miracle Whip, six or eight Miracle Whip sandwiches, which one piece of bread per sandwich. I love, I love the taste of it, right? I am a Miracle Whip guy through and through. And mayonnaise, honestly... Let's be honest, mayonnaise is a little too fancy for me. If you know me through the podcast, I'm not a mayonnaise guy. Like, what's going to happen next? I'm going to eat Grey Poupon and put the napkin on my lap in a fancy restaurant? No way. I don't do that. I don't like to. I think it's pretentious. I'll go out to eat a fancy dinner with my wife, and everyone around me has got their napkin on her lap, and my wife's, like, hitting at me, and she's like, hey, man, put your napkin on your lap, and I just don't like to do it because it's not me in my heart, right? I think it would be... It would be hypocritical of me to put a napkin in my lap while I had mayonnaise sandwiches, Miracle Whip sandwiches the night before, right? I'm just not true to myself if I would do that, you know, I'm not, but it makes so much more sense. Tell me if I'm wrong. The napkin in the lap doesn't make any sense. You should tuck the napkin in your shirt that way it covers your shirt because why would I want to put a dirty napkin that I wiped my hands on back in my lap? It's going to make my pants dirty. But if I tuck it in my shirt and I'm at a really nice restaurant like Cracker Barrel or O'Charlie's or something like that, maybe I went to Golden Corral because I want to get some well-done ribeyes and dip them in ketchup. I don't know. I want to make sure that my shirt's clean because I might have a really cool baseball shirt on. Who really knows? But apparently that's frowned upon like peeing in your front yard or cussing at kids while you wave at them or something. I really don't know. Like people get mad if you cuss around kids. But it's 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 looked it's frowned upon. But the Miracle Whip sandwiches, like I'm super excited about them, and I just love I love the way they taste, man. Miracle Whip is number one to me. Yo, okay. So what also is going on? Listen, I think I'm gonna get a sponsor for the podcast. Now this isn't. This podcast isn't a money-grubbing, money-making venture for me. I don't want to bog this thing down with ads. I don't really care if I make money off the podcast, right? All I wanted to do is build a community of baseball folks that appreciate nostalgic baseball. They can all get together and talk about it, talk about their good memories of their mom or dad playing catch with them in the front yard after their parents have worked all day just busting their ass. You know, it's about what baseball teaches us as kids, the nostalgia we feel about it, and how we can apply it to our current lives and our current family, right? I want to build a community about that, but 
I won't tell you who the sponsor is yet because I probably won't start work on it until later this week, but it's a really good sponsor and it's a sponsor that sort of, you know, has the same beliefs that I do about nostalgia and building a community. And the first thing I, I told this dude, I was like, listen, man, just so you know, I drink Ham's beer or old style while I'm recording sometimes and while I open up baseball cards on Instagram TV. And so I said, if you want to, if you want to work with me, just know I'm going to be drunk and probably drinking a beer. And he's like, that's okay. And I'm like, we're good. Right? Match made in heaven. And, but it's a really good sponsor and I'm not going to bog folks down or try to make you buy the hat. I want to be upfront about what I'm doing, but I like the, you know, it's a hat brand. That's all I'll say. I don't know if I can say, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say that much. I don't know the rules of engagement. This is not a professional podcast, right? And I don't care if I make money, right? But the guy's paying me a little bit, which is cool. All I'm going to do is buy hams and Miracle Whip with it. <laughs> so it's like, fuck it, man, let's go. But I think, listen, I haven't had a haircut in six months and I think it's time to grow the mullet. And I told my wife, I said, listen, I said, I got a sponsor now. And I also have an upcoming podcast where I interview an author of a book, the guy that wrote the wax pack, he opened a pack of 86 tops, got 15 cards out of it, because that's the amount, and went and tracked every one of the guys in that pack down, right? So I told my wife, I said, listen, listen, Courtney, Courtney is her name. I said, listen, Courtney, I said, I interviewed an author the other day, an author, someone who's a writer, right? She's like, that's impressive. I said, I know, right? And I said, listen, I think I'm going to get a sponsor for the podcast. Someone, they, they've contacted me and they want to partner with me to tell a really good nostalgic baseball story. And she goes, you got a sponsor? And I said, yeah. I said, I think I'm really, um, you know, this, this the podcast, people must like it, right? And that's cool, right? Because I know my mom and dad like it, but it seems like other people outside of my family listen to it and laugh at, laugh at me just as much as they do. It's like, okay, good. So I told her, I said, it's time for me to grow a mullet because I need to own the brand. She goes, no, you can't grow a mullet, Quentin. I said, why not? She goes, you're not in county prison. You're not a farmer. Like, you're not, I don't know what to say, man. She's, she, doesn't, she doesn't really understand the mullet, and I can't blame her for that, right? Is she worried that the sexiness of a really good mullet might bring about three or four more children in this marriage and she's nervous to handle it? I think so. I think she's probably scared what the hotness will do to her, right? She didn't marry Fabio, but what happens if her husband turns into Fabio with a mullet, right? With with a slight drinking problem, right? I don't know if she would be able to contain herself, right? But also, right, if you have a mullet, and you drink a good beer like hams, you'll look like you can fix shit around the house. And I'm not handy at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I change a light bulb, I'm dropping one of them. That could be because of the booze. I'm not too sure. Or that I have Miracle Whip on my fingers still, right? But I think, I think I've got to grow the mullet. So because I'm, I'm, I'm living that life right now, right? I'm living that nostalgic baseball life. And I think a mullet is a statement of strength and power. Having a good mullet, is like having a robust waistline back in like the 17 and 1800s because back in the medieval days, if you had a really big waistline, it was a sign of wealth because you could afford good food. You could afford the fattened calf or Miracle Whip or whatever, right? And obviously in this day and age, you know, everyone can afford food. So there's really, it's really not much there, right? So, but not everyone 
has a mullet. So I'm thinking in my head, like, what does a mullet say about me? A mullet says that I'm rugged, that I'm tough. And I got a daughter now, and the mullet might help the podcast to succeed. And I need to send her to a good private school, man, because I want her to be smart. I mean, smarter than me for sure. You know, I'm like, I feel like I'm like that dad who's like, I just want a better life for my kid, you know? maybe like a functioning liver and to travel out of the United States before she's 32. <laughs> oh, that's her crying in the background though, man. I got to get her. Hold on. Oh boy. I had to pause for a second. <laughs> if you listen carefully right before this, you can hear my daughter screaming in the background. I think she was this close to transforming into her final form. And I don't know what would happen when that beast is unleashed. <laughs> There's no telling, but I'm here alive right now. I just took her and my wife to a friend's house about five houses down, and I just drove him up there in my car, but it was the sweetest thing when I did. Listen, sort of sweet, sort of irresponsible, but I drove him up there, right? And I set my daughter on my lap while I drove the car, and she loved it. And I know it sounds irresponsible, but it was about five houses down. We maybe hit five miles an hour, but she just loved it. She lit up. She loves to look out the windows. She loves the outdoors. She loves to put her hands on the steering wheel and just try to touch every button she can get. She's just the sweetest thing in the world. I would never let anything happen to her. And it was just so fun. But also... That's nothing compared to what our parents would do when we were kids. I remember for like any time we would go out to my grandparents' house, which was about 30 minutes like out in the country. That's what we called it. You either lived in town or you lived out in the country. And so we'd go out to my grandma's out in the country and my mom would sit me on her lap as a four-year-old and we would just drive the whole way and I would steer the steering wheel and she would control the gas pedals, right? So like, yeah, that, that was a blast, man. I loved that. Good times. I was a little scared at first because I was only four and could barely ride a bike, but it was so good. I don't know that I, this is how it was in the 80s. I don't know that I ever, as soon as I could hold myself up and had the core strength to sit up, I probably didn't ride in a car seat. They're my, my baby pictures from when I was out of the hospital. My mom didn't bring me home in a car seat. I sat on her lap or she like held me in her arms or whatever, man. But that's, those are different times. But I obviously like, yeah, my daughter doesn't ride on my lap like to town or anything like that. But through the neighborhood, we're cruising five miles an hour. She loves it, man. She loves to look out the window, you know. Sue me, man. But it's, um... You know, she enjoys it. And like, it's like that, like, you know, if you were a kid raised in the 80s, right, and your parents were a little, you know, um, wild or whatever, you, you know, probably sort of did some things you weren't supposed to do. But that's part of just discovering life when you're a kid, right? Like, I remember we used to have the bug truck drive through the neighborhood. And I guess to like spray for mosquitoes and stuff, right? But we did. Like when I was a kid, this truck, this big truck would drive through the neighborhood. It was just a normal truck, but it had this big tank on it and it would spray out bug spray and it was real smoky. It was like a big smoke bomb, right? Remember when you were a kid for the 4th of July, you'd get smoke bombs and like put them on the back of your bike and ride around the neighborhood? It was legit, man. Then like shoot your friends with bottle rockets. See, that's those are the things that don't happen anymore. Like, Sitting your kid on your lap to drive a block up the road at 10 miles an hour, shooting bottle rockets at your friends or BB guns, that's considered unsafe now. And, well, should have been considered unsafe then, too. But, like, listen, I still want better for my kid, right? Like, I'm going to send her to a Montessori private school, and that's, like, a school where kids can sort of just be creative and discover themselves or whatever. I don't know. My wife said it's good, and it sounds good to me. 
So, like, whatever, I'm cool. I trust my wife 100%. She's way better human being than I am. But so when the bug truck would drive through the neighborhood and blow smoke out the back, we would ride behind it on our bikes. <laughs> and, like, we would get so close to the back of the truck, you couldn't see the person next to you. We were just engulfed in smoky bug spray. And I'm 100% sure it's cancer-causing. <laughs> like, I'm alive right now. But I know, like, if I'm 50 and get, like, some sort of weird lung cancer, it's going to be because I rode behind the bug truck when I was a kid. And my parents didn't care. My mom would be like, oh, that's cute. Let me get a picture. You know what I mean? Just not knowing what the fuck I'm breathing in. But I'll tell you this. I didn't get bit by mosquitoes. And I felt really cool when I was done, man. And, dude, it was just a fun, man. Smoke, dude. Smoke when you were a kid was so awesome. Smoke and fire, dude. So right around the neighborhood, go get your pack of baseball cards, but you got a lighter on you too, just in case you got to light something on fire, or maybe you find a cigarette butt on the ground and want to take a few puffs of it. But I also remember when I was a kid, my mom would let me drive her car to the gas station to go buy cigarettes. I was not 16. I was like probably like 12, 13, or 14. And my mom would get really excited about it like it was a reward or something, you know? Like if you go to like Walmart and your mom's like, oh, do you want a, you want a toy or something? You'd be like, yeah. Well, my mom would be like, hey, do you want to go get me cigarettes? And I'd be like, yeah, let's go. And what it was is my mom had a friend that worked the front counter at the gas station. And if I was going to drive my mom's car to the gas station, she had a Pontiac Grand Prix GT with some loud ass six by nines in the back. So I would always put like a Coolio Gangster Paradise cassette or something in there, man, or Bone Thugs and Harmony cassette, man. Put that cassette in there, dude, and get the six by nines pumping the bass because that's when you get in the car. You turn the treble down and the bass up and just start bumping. And that's what I would do. And what it was is it, all I had to do was drive about five blocks straight and then cross one busy road, right? And that was always an adrenaline rush because it wasn't that strong of a driver, but I really enjoyed it. And so she was like, do you want to go get me cigarettes? I'm like, yeah, let's go. So I'd get my cassette, man, and I would just make that journey, go in there, get a carton of Marlboro Lights and come back, dude. And it was just so fun. This podcast is getting wild today. I apologize because it's the coffee. Okay. Listen, let's, uh, oh, crazy stuff, man. Starting fires, dude. We would burn leaves, man, in the fall and just run through the fire, ride our bikes through the fire like we were evil Knievel. Those are just simple times, man. Put a, like a Doug Sisk baseball card in your spoke because you know you'll get more and it's not really worth anything because you looked it up in your Beckett. That was a situation, man. Beckett's were legit back in the day, man. A Beckett? would sort of tell you your future wealth as a baseball collector. So the routine was ride your bike to the card shop, get get some cards, buy some singles. Well, first of all, you had already scouted the Beckett. So you knew the prices of cards in the Beckett, and you knew what was trending up. So then you go to the card shop, and you look for those single cards in the glass case. And so you use some of, you know, I would use some of my, I had a paper route and I did dishes. So I was a little hustler when I was a kid. Like I always kept money. I would get paid $5 a week to do the dishes. So it was a dollar a day. And then my paper route would pay me about a hundred dollars a month. And honestly, I've never been richer since that moment. <laughs> and so you go to the card shop, man, Beckett, you've researched your Beckett, but you don't take the Beckett with you because you don't want the person to like see through you. Right. Because I always thought like, well, I'm not going to take the Beckett because that card's trending and I'm going to go get a deal on it. I'm really going to haggle, you know, the card shop owner, right? But then you also buy a couple packs of cards, ride back, open the cards, and then dig through the Beckett again, man. The Beckett was awesome, dude. 
awesome. And it was just, you know, you felt like a young entrepreneur, man. You didn't really know what the word meant because it wasn't around then, but it was all about you know, getting those expensive baseball cards, but also like finding out what your friends had and trying to trade them. And maybe they hadn't read the recent Beckett and they didn't know that, you know, an Ozzy Gian upper deck went up by like five cents last month. And you're like, yo, Ozzy Gian might turn out to be the real thing. Let's go ahead and do this. Or like a Felix Jose rated rookie. I bought low on the Felix Jose rated rookie because I thought he was going to be good because his card looked good. That was the thing, man. I would always line out the rated rookies and I would just pick which player I thought was going to be the best just solely based on gut and how they looked, right? Because you looked cool or you didn't look cool. And that's honestly how you picked some of your favorite baseball players back in the day was just like, hey, who had the cool card, man? Like when 89 Upper Deck came out, you knew King Griffey Jr. card number one was going to be good because that Upper Deck set was legit. First of all, you had to save up you know, a lot of good money to get it because those cards were a little more expensive. They felt thick, right? They were a high quality card. And that was just it, man. But Beckett's, oh, we're so legit. Beckett's lighting things on fire and Miracle Whip sandwiches. That's what we've come to so far in this podcast. Listen, I did write down some baseball stuff, right? And I got to tell you, um, Phil Necro, the greatest knuckleballer of all time, passed away. I guess it's been a few weeks now, right? And Phil Necro was an uh, is is still an absolute baseball legend and I use the word is because I think the power of baseball you know you have legends like Phil Necro and Tony Gwynn and you know Babe Ruth whoever right these guys you know live on forever because of the great things they did in Major League Baseball the way they made us feel you know sort of that nostalgic factor I love these baseball players are superheroes and I believe Phil Negro was one of them so when I say he does he is a legend that's because even though he's passed away like his numbers what he meant to the game how he played the game you know it's um indelible is that the right word like it's stuck in our mind and Phil Negro was one of those guys so Phil Negro grew up in Ohio and Phil, sorry, I just hit the mic. And Phil Necro's old man worked in the coal mines, right? Rugged, dude. First generation from, I think they were of Polish descent, man. So Phil Necro's grandpa was immigrated to this country, right? You know, they didn't start with nothing. They all worked in the coal mines. And his old man worked in the coal mine, busted his ass, you know, forever, and actually played in a coal mine baseball league, right? And so the Phil Necro story like starts off with his dad being this rugged coal miner playing in a coal mine sandlot league, teaching Phil Necro and his brother Joe Necro, who both passed away, to throw the knuckleball. He taught them to throw the knuckleball in the backyard, seemingly just one day after work. And part of why, you know, you can take that little nugget of info right there, and it's sort of you know, sums up at least how baseball feels to me in a pretty big way because Phil Necro wasn't just the greatest knuckleballer of all time, but he came with a really good, hardworking, blue-collar story, right? And so with Phil Necro's baseball career starting out with his coal miner dad, teaching him and his brother the knuckleball in the backyard reminds me of being a kid and, you know, the hard work that my dad put into life, right? Making sure that you know, he built me a pitcher's mound in the backyard, making sure we had big Christmases, you know, plenty of food to eat. Right? He busted his ass seven days a week and still never complained. To this day, he's never complained a day in his life about hard work and is willing to do anything he needs to do for his family, right? So always my dad would work seven days a week, you know, 5 a.m. to 4 p.m. and still play baseball with me, coach my teams and everything. And that's how Phil Necro's dad was, right? Phil Necro, 
Phil Negro's dad, he was throwing fastballs in this uh, coal mine sandlot league, but he hurt his arm and he couldn't throw it anymore. So another coal miner showed him how to throw a knuckleball. So Phil's dad, Phil and Joe's dad, was throwing the knuckleball in this coal miner sandlot league, right? And then he just so happened to show both of his sons how to throw a knuckleball in the backyard. And Phil Necro and Joe Necro are the two winningest pitchers in baseball history. Phil Necro over 300 wins, 90-something-plus war, Hall of Famer. Joe Necro won about 218 games, and they actually, the original brothers who won more games than anybody in Major League Baseball were the Perry brothers. You had Gaylord Perry and his brother Jim Perry. They won 500-something games because Gaylord was a 300-game winner. I think he won his 300th game while he was on a pot, while he was a Padre, I believe. And Phil and Joe eclipsed that total, and that's probably a record that'll never be broken, right? And what's so awesome about the Phil Necro story, and Joe Necro for that matter, is just how his dad learned the knuckleball busted his ass, and I've said this a hundred times, but it's like, who would have ever thought that a coal, a fellow coal miner teaching the Necro brothers' dad how to throw a knuckleball, he shows it to them in the backyard, and then he ends up having two successful sons get into the major leagues, right? Like, what are the chances that you could just, now Joe wasn't, you know, Joe Necro adopted knuckleball later in his career, Maybe when he was with the Astros, I'm not 100% sure. And Joe also threw the knuckler when he was with the Minnesota Twins because have you ever seen that shot where he gets busted? Joe Necro got busted for having a file, for having a file, a nail file and sandpaper in his pocket while he was pitching. And what happened was, so he was pitching for the Twins, Joe Necro was. I don't know who he's pitching against. The other team complains. Manager comes out there. He's scuffing the fucking ball. We don't know. So, and Joe's loaded and stuff. Joe, in his back pocket, has sandpaper and the nail file. And so the umpire comes out there and is like, empty your pockets. And Joe knows he's busted. He's got nothing to lose. But Joe's not emptying his pockets. He's just got his hands in the air like, I don't know what you guys are talking about, man. And so he puts his hands in his back pocket, then <laughs> raises his arms in the air again, and all of his paraphernalia flies out of his back pocket. And I'm assuming because he thinks that, one, no one will notice the stuff fly out of his pocket, which it's a huge piece of sandpaper. Like, it looks like he's about to sand a two-by-four. I'm like, what the fuck? And the umpire immediately sees it, and he's like, this stuff just flew out of your pocket. You're ejected. And Joe's like, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> And then like a few weeks later, he was on David Letterman talking about scuffing the ball. I loved it, man. And that's, dude, like so legit. Man, he's all that stuff. But what was funny with Joe Negro post-game, he was like, I always keep a nail file and sandpaper with me because sometimes my fingernails get rough and I can't grip the knuckleball properly or something. So I smooth my nails and uh, everyone's just like, you mean to tell me you keep a nail file in your back pocket so you can do your nails? Like, no way. He's like, yeah, I just have it on the mound. Like, I don't really know. Like, it was like when you're a kid and you get caught like in a crazy lie and in your head and you're like your six-year-old head, like it sounds legit, but you know, it's not real. Like one time I tried to spray paint my face to look like the ultimate warrior spray paint because I had a Roadmaster bike that my me and my dad painted neon orange with spray paint because that's the color I had picked and we had paint left. 
So I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to do that shit, man. So I spray painted my face on purpose, but it didn't work out good, right? Because I shut my eyes and I just sprayed it and it went bad and the paint wouldn't come off. So like I told my mom, she sees me. I got neon orange paint on my face and she's like, what the fuck did you do? And I'm like, oh, it was an accident. Like I stepped on it and it shot in my face. And she's like, that's not true at all. <laughs> or like the first time I ever got drunk, dude, listen. My buddy Josh had an 82 Camaro with T-tops, 82 or 83 Camaro with T-tops, right? And uh, dude, it was so legit, man. And we would cruise his Camaro on the weekends, right? And just drink beer, right? We would get like, it was usually Keystone Light because that was the cheapest. And we would cruise town with Keystone Light. And the first time we ever got a case of Keystone Light, it was like a 24 pack. And one, I had never been truly drunk before, and I just never had access to that much beer, right? And so I treated it like any other food or beverage in my life. I was like, well, let's just drink it all, right? Like, because you were so excited as a kid to have beer because you couldn't buy it yourself. And so naturally, you wanted to eat it all. It was like when your mom would take you to Pizza Hut and you would eat a Bigfoot pizza and then go play in the arcade. Like, you know, you're going to spend all your um, allowance money from doing dishes and you're going to eat all the Bigfoot pizzas. So the booze to me was not a thing, right? So me and my buddy Josh, we go out, we're drinking and drive. That sounds so bad. I'm sorry. That's just the way it was, man. I don't do it anymore, but like, and I can't deny it, but it's a funny story, right? So we're just hammered ass drunk, man. I remember taking a piss in the middle of Hardy's parking lot. Everyone saw my small penis, right? Like I just was really, really drunk and we finished it all, man. And I was maybe 120 pounds, right? When I was 16 and he was about the same, dude. So we drink all these beers, but I was hyper. So I must've drank more because I got insanely sick, man. I stayed the night at his house and I just barfed everywhere, right? Next morning I come home. Now we were, my buddy Josh lived with his grandma, right? So his grandma calls my mom the next day and was like, I said, Quentin got sick last night. I think they were out drinking or whatever. So I walk in the house and I'm just fucked up, man. I'm still throwing up. I probably legit had alcohol poisoning, right? And my mom, she asked me what's going on. She goes, what's going on? Why are you sick? And I go, oh, mom, I had Taco Bell last night and I think something was wrong with it because that was always the thing. If I ever got sick from booze, I was like, Taco Bell, man, made me sick, you know? And then my mom was like, okay, sounds good. Like she believed me, man. I couldn't believe it because I just feel like she didn't want to think that her son would go out and get like hammered or whatever. I'm not too sure. I think she believed me, but that was sort of one of those lies to where, you know, you can't throw up and be sick for like 24 hours straight and just literally you know, vomit like 10 feet out, man. Like it really propelled. And it was because of a soft shell taco and Taco Bell. And I reeked of boost. Like I was just sweating profusely. And like, if I truly had food poisoning, like I probably need to go to the emergency room because I fucking look like I had salmonella or something. But hey, you know, it worked and that's how it was. But dude, getting beer when you were a kid was so fun, man. Um, But anyway, I don't even know where I was going with that. But so it was... It's just crazy still to think that the Necro Brothers, right, ended up being these legends. Oh, because I was talking about the nail filing incident. Yeah, okay. So anyway, to go on with it or whatever, I have more uh, I have more Phil Necro stories. It, it, it's crazy because Phil Necro, listen, when Phil Necro was 28 years old, he had only won six times. He had six wins and only started once in... Um, 
his whole career at that point. So one start, six wins. He's 28 years old, right? So the Braves would oftentimes send him down and bring him up, right? Because it wasn't really common to only have one pitch and that be a knuckleball, right? So that's what Phil Negro came up with is he only had a knuckleball, right? Like Jim Booten, he met Jim in 59, Phil did. And Jim threw a knuckleball, but also had like four other pitches. And they had had a conversation and Jim was like, you only throw a knuckleball? Like, that's not going to work. And Phil's like, yeah, that's all. That's the only pitch I have. I only, I don't only throw it. I don't throw nothing else because it seems to work for me. And Jim actually said he felt sorry. Jim Booten said he felt he felt sorry for Phil because he only had one pitch. And by the time Jim was 21, he was pitching in the World Series for the Yankees, was a 20-game winner, and Phil was still in the minors, right? And so this is sort of like, I can't imagine the patience that Phil Necro had knowing that he was still in the minors at the age of 27 and continued continued to throw the knuckleball, the ball that his old man taught him to throw in the backyard. He never gave up on it, even when he was in the minors at 27. And I mean, that to me is just super impressive, you know, and he just like, I don't know if I'm thinking too much into it or not, but that just makes me think of like how important family is to the, um, you know, to baseball, right? Or really maybe to any sport that you play. I, I've always thought it's amazing how much people can bond over sports. It really is a beautiful thing, you know? Like, you've got, even like when you look at football, you got crazy Buffalo Bills fans who are like getting hammered and jumping through tables. And it's just, it's this camaraderie thing. Like, it's a way to just come together and enjoy life. And, you know, like I said, that's always been my goal with this podcast. That's what I love about it. And you really see it with the Necro brothers. Like, even when they broke the the all-time record for wins by brothers, Phil Necro, Phil and Joe, they both said, listen, this isn't a Phil and Joe Necro record. This is a Necro family record. And they looked at their success in Major League Baseball as not just them two succeeding, but as their entire family succeeding and making it happen because they both felt that they wouldn't have succeeded with their dad because their dad shot him, told, uh, showed them the knuckleball and really showed them the value of hard work. But it didn't end there too, right? They had a sister who, you know, was there for them and really important to them. And, you know, their mom as well, right? And they really looked at their success in baseball and just their enjoyment of baseball is a family thing. And I just thought it was so cool that they called their record for most wins by brothers as a Necro family record. That's so cool to me. Okay, listen to this though. Phil Necro's 1967 season is one of the wildest and most impressive seasons ever. So in 1967... He pitched in 46 games, started 20 games, which means he showed up in relief 26 times. Now, just stop there for a second. In 1967, yes, Phil Negro started 20 games, which is significant, and also pitched in relief 26 times through 207 innings, threw 10 complete games, had nine saves, threw a shutout in 207 innings, led the league in earn run average at 1.87 with a 179 ERA+. plus. Now, he also led the league in wild pitches at 19, which tells you that his knuckleball was dancing that season. And 28 was his very first season 
that he was in the pros for good. Like I said earlier, he was in the minors up until age 27. But I just think this is outstanding to me. The flexibility that he would have had, right, to perform on that high of a level, which shows in his earned run average and his ERA plus, and he had a whip of 1.058, right? He wasn't giving up any homers, right? That rate was 0.4 per nine innings, right? So people just weren't hitting him. So to have that versatility to start when you needed him to, to come out of the bullpen when you needed him to, and hold down those numbers. I mean, I wonder how many guys in their in a season have had 10 complete games and nine saves. That's a crazy number to me. Like, I can come in and save a game, and then a couple days later, I'll pitch the whole fucking thing. Like, let's go, man. A super, super impressive season. He also had 129 strikeouts, which is a pretty good strikeout rate, I feel like, back then. 5.6 strikeouts per nine. You know, I'm wanting to say... <clears throat> In, this is in 1977. This is completely crazy to me. Actually, probably a really impressive season still. In 1977, one of his other really good seasons, he led the league in strikeouts with 262. A knuckleball pitcher leading the league in strikeouts. That is crazy. He also led the league in walks, which is true. Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're last. So in 1977... Phil Necro was like, hey, I'm going to strike you out or I'm going to walk you, and it doesn't matter because he still kept a 4.03 ERA, which is pretty respectable, but just not that hittable. So he starts 43 games. He, holy shoot. He, wait, he started 43 games. Yeah, yeah. Do two shutouts, but 20 complete games over 330 innings. And from 77 to 79, he led the whole damn league in innings pitch, man. You're talking 330, 342. Oh, 330, 334, and 342 innings. The most innings he ever pitched in his career, and he was 40 years old. Talk about that coal miner blood running deep. There's no doubt about it that Phil Negro had old man strength. I bet when he was 40 years old, he'd just kick anybody's ass, man. Somebody commented on my Instagram that said you would never see, you know, um, Phil Negro get in a fight like Nolan Ryan did because nobody had the balls to charge the mountain on Phil Negro. Because when you've got a pitcher out there with a full head of gray hair who's striking out 262 guys, I don't think you want to mess with him, right? Like to this day, I wouldn't fight my dad. He He's had two knees and a hip replaced. I still think he would kiss, kick my ass, kiss my ass. No, don't do that. I don't want to fight dad, I promise. <laughs> but just, just grit, man. Just unreal. And at that point, hell, when he was 40, he was 6th in Cy Young voting and 20th in MVP. Now, the best Cy Young he ever did was in 1969 when he was 30. Now, I'm pretty sure he lost that to Tom Seaver. Yep, Tom Seaver beat him in Cy Young voting. And Tom Seaver probably should have, man. Tom Seaver was nuts. But that, I mean, great seasons for Phil Necro. Unreal. And also, listen, I got to tell you the story, though, about... Okay, so Phil Necro was an Atlanta Brave... Until 1983 was his last year with the Braves. He threw 201 innings, 397 ERA, impressive season, right? He was a good pitcher, good pitcher. Well, Joe Torrey was coach at that time, and Bob Gibson was the pitching coach. Now, at the end of the 83 season, Bob Gibson and Joe Negro, they had a team staff meeting, and they highly recommended, basically told Phil Negro that he needed to retire, right? Now, Phil Necro's like, well, fuck you guys. I'm pitching. Like, I think I got four or five years left. And then plus, Phil Necro wanted to make a run at 300. 
So post-1983, I don't have the number in front of me, but I want to say he had like 260-something wins, and he had obviously just come off a pitching season at age 44 with a 3.97 ERA with 201 innings, right? This is, and he was 11 wins and 10 losses, and all of those Brave teams, probably the 83 team too, couldn't have been that good. Well, they were 88 and 74, so they weren't bad, but still, these are productive numbers right here, and... Phil's like, well, screw you guys. I'm going to go pitch somewhere else. Like, I got years in me. Now, Joe, Joe Necro, listen, this pitched Joe off, pissed Joe Necro off. And Joe Necro was pitching for the Astros at that time and vouched for his brother. He's like, listen, if you guys need a pitcher, Phil could pitch, right? And the reason why Joe Necro was so pissed is because he felt that Joe Torrey was doing a really bad job managing the Braves and that if he slipped up, they would fire Joe Torrey and then just bring in Phil Necro as a player manager, which when player managers, I love the idea of a player manager. Like you got a guy running the team and when things aren't going good, he's like, fuck it, give me the ball. I'm about to go out there, man. Like you're talking, I wish Phil Necro would have been, but like the one I think of most is when Pete Rose was a player manager. Frank Robinson was a player manager for the Indians. I think we should still have player managers. Like bring that back. Because I feel like that would rev up a team so good. Like I'm just waiting for like the Tampa Bay Rays to just be like, hey, we're going to get a player manager here, man, because that would hype you up because you would have a guy in the trenches with you, on the field with you, getting dirty, running people over, just being like, I'm going to run this team. And I feel like that would create so much camaraderie. Like players would just love it. And I hope, I hope it happens at some point, right? But anyway, so that's why Joe Necro was like, they want Phil to leave because Phil was a threat to Joe Torrey's job. Now, after the 1984 season, I'm pretty sure Joe Torrey got fired anyway because he did a crappy job, and then it might have been at that point the Braves brought in Chuck Tanner. I don't know exactly the year, but so what happened was uh, Phil Necro signed a two-year, maybe a three-year contract with the New York Yankees, and he got Phil Necro got his 300th win as a New York Yankee, which is one of the absolute best stories that I've ever heard. And I hadn't I hadn't heard this story until I read about it. What it might have been the day it was announced that Phil Negro had passed away, right? So it was the, oh, let me remember the season. It was the 85 season, I think. It was the 85 season, yep. So here's what happened. Phil Negro signed a two-year contract with the New York Yankees. And when he signed that contract, he was 32 wins shy of 300, right? So Phil Necro won 16 games in 84. And then going into 85, Phil Necro needed to win 16 games. Now, the shot at 300 came down to the last game of the season that Phil Necro was going to pitch. So in 1985, his last start of the year, it might have been the last game of the year. I'm not too sure. But it was at least Phil Necro's last start of the year. He's got 15 wins. So Phil Necro's last start of 1985, he's got 15 wins for the season, 299 total. He's one win shy, and he's pitching against the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, at the time, his father is in the hospital, seriously ill in the hospital. He can't be at the game, and his mom's not there at the game because his mom's with him at the hospital. Now, ahead of the game, and Phil did not know this. And at the time, actually in 1985, I think Joe Necro was a Yankee as well in 1985. Here, let me double check that real quick. I mean, because they, yep. Okay, so this is even cooler. In 1985, Phil and Joe Necro were teammates in the Yankees dugout 
while his dad is seriously ill in a hospital and his mom is with his dad in the hospital, right? And when you talk about the Necro family, you know, like Phil and Joe Necro talking about their success in all of their records in Major League Baseball as Necro family records, it's only appropriate that Joe and Phil are both Yankees in the dugout. Now, it is unfortunate that his father couldn't be there because he was really sick in the hospital and the mom was at the hospital supporting the dad. Now, ahead of the game, neither Necro brother knew this. I know Phil didn't know this. Um, George Steinbrenner had set up a radio to play through the telephone in the hospital room because he knew Phil's dad was sick. So he said, George Steinbrenner, you don't you hear about George Steinbrenner being like this hard ass dude. George Steinbrenner set up this radio to play through the telephone in the hospital room. A super sweet thing to do. And Phil didn't know this. And when it came to getting his 300th win at the beginning of the game, Phil Necro said, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to throw any knuckleballs. I'm going to throw everything but a knuckleball. He wanted to get that 300th win. And when you're 40, how old was he, 46 or something like that? Yeah, 46. Hey, man, you do all kinds of things different because you've got like 100 years of experience, right? Well, he really been in the league since he was a full-time starter since he was 28, right? So 46, he's like, I'm not going to throw, I'm going to throw no knuckleballs this game, right? Now... He gets to the ninth inning. He has not given up a hit, and the Yankees are winning eight to nothing. So this is just so awesome that he trots out there, and he could get his 300th win on a shutout. Did I say no hits allowed? I mean, he hadn't given up a run. I believe I'm about to bring up the box score for that game. I think for this particular game going into the eighth inning, I think he had given up four hits. Here, give me one second. I'm not going to pause it, but I'm just going to bring up the box score of this game. Hold on one second. Oh, I'm going to have to pause it. Hold your horses. Oh, never mind. I had it in front of me. I don't have producers on this podcast. It's just me producing a lot of beer in my hand, okay, <laughs> or coffee today, right? But it's it's already 11.53 my time now, so as soon as noon hits, it's going to be beer 30, I guess. Hams o'clock, baby, crap. Slam the hams, brother. Listen, so he, at this point, had given up four hits, right? So four hits, three walks, five Ks. So this is a good game, right? So he gets the first two guys out. The last batter comes up, and I wish I could remember who that last batter is. Hold on. The last batter was a guy named Jeff Burroughs. Now, going into that inning, actually, I have to take it back. Going into the ninth inning of what could possibly be his 300th win. Again, the Yankees were up 8 to nothing, And Phil had only given up three hits. He gave up a double to Tony Fernandez with two outs, right? So we got Rick Leach to ground out, Lou Thornton to a foul pop fly. And then Jeff Burroughs is the batter, right? So he's probably feeling a little bit of heat because he's got that runner on second. Obviously, he's not going to want to get pulled out of the game. Because back in these days, it was pitcher's goal to throw a complete game. They had pride when they would throw a complete game and never wanted to come out of the game. When, listen, when Joe Torrey and Bob Gibson took over in Atlanta, right, they were only pitching Joe to like the sixth or seventh inning because they were like, well, we're looking at the numbers and you're getting tired after the sixth or seventh inning. So we're going to start pulling you out early and relying on the bullpen. Now, that season turned out pretty good for Phil Negro. He only threw like low 200s in the innings, which is crazy because Phil felt like that was a bad season because they were taking him out of games. You got a guy that threw 340 innings when he was 40 years old, and now all of a sudden Bob Gibson 
and Joe Torre are pulling him out of games, and he only threw 207 innings. Phil Necro was pissed because they were taking him out of the games early, right? And that particular season, uh, Phil Necro had a really low ERA in the twos and led the league, as far as pitchers are concerned, in win percentage. But Phil was pissed, man. It wasn't with Phil. It was not about having a low ERA or having the best pitcher's winning percentage, right? He didn't care about any of those things. He wanted to go out there. He wanted to go to war, and he wanted to pitch the whole damn game. That's what you did as a pitcher. So he didn't care how pretty the numbers looked. He had the confidence and the strength and the endurance and the fortitude to say, I want it all. I want to win the whole damn game for my team. And that's who he was as a person. All the way back in Ohio with his old man being a coal miner and just these gritty dudes who had all the confidence in the world, right? Like this is the guy that was in the minor leagues at 27 and was only throwing the knuckleball and never gave up on it, never gave up on the pitch that his dad taught him, never lost faith in what he had and who his family was. Like I feel in a sense that Phil Necro never gave up on his family and who his family was. You know, their core beliefs. And I think that's reflected on him never giving up on the knuckleball, right? So this is 0-2 Jeff Burrows, two outs. At this point, Phil still has not thrown a knuckleball the entire game. So while Phil is on the mound, he thinks to himself, I'm going to throw a knuckleball and get my 300th win. What better way to get this 300th win than throwing the pitch that my dad taught me in the backyard that he learned it at the coal mines, probably just got off of work, probably still had the soot and the coal on his face. Back there, teaching his kids how to throw, working long-ass days. Coal mines are gritty-ass work. And he goes, I'm going to win this 300th game with what my dad showed me with that pitch because this isn't just me winning 300 games. This is my family winning 300 games. He throws Jeff a knuckleball. Jeff struck out on the only knuckleball he threw in his 300th win, and he got the win. Now, after the game, Joe is one of the first guys to the pitcher's mound to give Phil a hug. And Phil told, or excuse me, Joe told Phil when he got out of the dugout, he goes, brother, I got to tell you something about dad. And Phil, in his heart, he's like, I'm expecting the worst. So me and Joe go back to the dugout. And Joe told Phil, he goes, listen, Phil, dad woke up in the seventh inning, looked at mom and said, boy, he's pitching a hell of a game. And it was in that moment that Phil knew his dad was listening to the game. Phil didn't know that there was a radio in there. Phil didn't know that his dad was awake. And all of a sudden, Phil's dad wakes up in the hospital and goes, that boy's pitching a hell of a game. And that, to me, is just the sweetest, most emotional, like, powerful thing, right? Like, baseball is not a joke when it brings people together and what it gives us. And in that moment, I cannot imagine how Phil felt when Joe told him that his dad woke up in the seventh inning and had been listening to the game and was like, boy, he's pitching a hell of a game. And reading that man just took me back to every moment my parents have been there for me, good and bad. And the times, you know, when it's been hard for them to, you know, do what they had to do as parents to, you know, keep working, to make sure me and my brother and my sister had everything we needed because I know it was self-sacrifice. 
And in that moment, like, I, I can't imagine how Phil felt and his dad was there and how proud his dad would have been, right? It's just an amazing story that his dad woke up for that moment and listened to the game. So the next day, the Negro boys, they fly to Pittsburgh to see their dad. That's where he's in the hospital is. So they drive to the hospital and Phil gets in that hospital room and puts that ball in his hand that he struck out Jeff Burroughs with, that knuckleball for his 300th win, put it right in his hand. And he said his dad was grinning ear to ear. And just to read that, you know, it's that's that's what baseball's about. You know, it's it's so much more than, you know, the things that go on today with like pacer play or, you know, the steroid era and things like that. Like we have a tendency to get lost in the the hype of the media, right? And, you know, it's hard for a lot of guys like myself and people, and you know, myself included, to get excited about baseball in its current state because so many things aren't the same. It's, you know, there it's not as physical as it used to be. You don't have takeout slides a second. You don't have takeout slides at home. And I understand those things because players are bigger than ever and we don't want people to get hurt, right? The, you know, Pete Rose running Ray Fossey over in that All-Star game is unfortunate. Fortunate, right? Uh, Ray Fossey's from my hometown. I played Little League at Ray Fossey Park. And, you know, Ray had a successful career, went to the athletics and, you know, won a World Series. I think just one World Series with the A's. If the A's won in 72, 73, 74, maybe Ray Fossey came from Cleveland at 74. I'm not too sure. I don't, I don't have that memorized. But, you know, he could have been a Hall of Famer, right? So when you look at that, and you look at what possibly could have been taken away from Ray Fossey. I doubt he would ever blame anything on anybody else. But it's like, you don't want to see anyone get hurt. But at the same time, you want to see the game played physical. And there are and there are aspects of the game I miss. The physicality of it. The drag bunts, the push bunts, the stealing, right? And it's those things that aren't gone, that are gone. You know, it's hardly ever guys win 20 games. You know, you know the Orioles in 19... 79 had four 20-game winners on their pitching staff. So even winning 20 games is few and far between, and you might get lucky if one pitcher, maybe two, you know, does it in the league, right? And complete games are gone, right? Your firemen closers like uh, Goose Gossage, right? They don't happen anymore, man. Goose Gossage would get off his saves by throwing, you know, two, three, hell, maybe four innings. And then, you know, you got guys like Mariano Rivera and... You know, Roldis Chapman, they come in, throw their one inning and get the save, right? And I only mention those things. I'm not saying one generation is better than the other, but I'm stating those differences because those are a lot of the things that make it hard for, you know, maybe people my age, older folks, to, right, I was born in 83, to, you know, really get into today's game and they really have a strong nostalgia for yesterday's game. But now I read a story like Phil Necro's and it makes me, yes, very much appreciate old baseball and appreciate, you know, the times growing up with my parents, you know, them working hard, teaching me a lot of values through baseball. And, you know, the chance that I have now to pass that on to my daughter. And if we have a second kid, which we think we're going to do. And that, reading that makes me appreciate today's game more because I'm less likely to focus on the negatives of the game, right? Because I still feel that you know, all those things I just mentioned where the game's changed, there's still a lot of great things about the game, man. You know, baseball still played in July in the hot-ass heat, and it's still a dirty sport, man. It is an aggressive sport. You know, you still have pitchers 
that brush back and throw at hitters, and you'll get fights on the mound, and you'll get some hard slides in the second and home sometimes. And, you know, there's there's fiery play in there, and that I do enjoy. But I think more importantly, you can look at the Phil Necro story, and it'll help, help you to appreciate the game in its current state and enjoy the current game with the loved ones around you, you know, and it just lets you know that the game of baseball is still, to this day, so much more than pace of play and launch angle and all of that stuff, right? The core of baseball is still there, and that core is still playing hard, still playing in the summertime, you know, and, you know, we're not professional baseball players, so we can still go to the game with our family and our kids and get a hot dog and a beer and get a really sick farmer's tan, right? And spend those moments, you know? And if you, you know, read stories like Phil Necro's, I think it can help all of us to appreciate the current game because we know the guts of the current game are still there. And I think that, I think that's family. I think it's camaraderie. I think it's being together and enjoying the moment, you know? And the next game you go to, you know, look at look at your kids and look at your spouse, you know, a second time and really take in what's happening. You know, put your cell phone down and just stare at the field. And if nothing's happening because it's between innings, don't take your eyes off of the field. You know, watch what's happening as the players come out and, you know, them talking to each other and, you know, playing catch warm up in between innings and things like that. Because I truly believe that as the games change, I believe the core of the game is still there. And I think it's uh, I think it's family. I think it's love. And I think it's hard work. And I think the looking back at a story like Phil Necro's definitely helps us to see that. All right, guys. Well, I guess that's a wrap. Greatest show on dirt. We are done for tonight's episode. Go to the Instagram page, Greatest Show on Dirt. If you want to follow along, that um, you can really burn some time on the page. If you want to lose a solid two hours at work, you're good because the the Instagram page will do that for you. And I want to say thanks again to everybody that listens to the podcast and that follows the Instagram because it seems it's turning into a really fun good community and that's not because of me that's because of everybody that follows the comment sections are such a delight there are a lot of funny people out there on the on my instagram page that leave comments really thoughtful comments but then really funny comments too and i really learn a lot you know by being a part of this big community and i sort of say like my instagram page but that sounds so weird because I feel like it's not my Instagram page. I have the password for it, right? And you can't have it. But I'm really, I'm humbled and very thankful that there's been a big community built on this page that I picked the password for. Because I feel like it's all of our Instagram page because I don't make it good, right? I take some time and I dig up photos and I try to write you know, informational posts, nostalgic posts, or something funny. And everybody that follows the page really makes the page come to life. You know, the comments are funny. They're informational. They make, they help me to remember some really good, fun times. And I get so much out of it. I would say, you know, especially during like all this quarantine stuff, you know, having to work from home, getting out of the house a little less. And, you know, my daughter turns one in seven days. And, you know, to have this, to be a part of this community on Instagram has been huge for me, not only for my love of baseball 
and, you know, like being closer to my parents because of this community that's been built on Greatest Show on Dirt on Instagram, you know, I, I call my parents more often, you know, and I'm more thankful for everything that they've done for me than I ever have been because, you know, this community sort of, you know, inspired me to be thankful for that because there are a lot of folks out there that pointed out, you know, the importance of family, you know, and, you know, the family that we've built through baseball and things like that, but also, you know, my daughter's about to turn one and, you know, being a part of this community and, you know, starting this new family has been really helpful to me. It's meant a lot. And I believe it's helped me become a better dad, you know, um, outside of letting my kid ride on my lap. Listen, I swear we only went five miles an hour and it was a block up the road, but I, um, it's helped me to be a better dad, right? Like I, enjoy waking up at 2 a.m. when she wakes up to give her a bottle, you know, and I bust my ass for the kid way more than what I ever thought I was capable of doing. And I and I think a big part of that is, well, because I've got a phenomenal wife who supports me, but also supports me in being a good dad. But also, I sort of am a part of this greatest show on dirt community that you know, reminds me of those things that are important and that's family, you know, and it's, 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 it's really hard to explain, but I do think like I've always talked about, there's an intersection with family and baseball. And I think if we stop and smell the roses for a little bit, we can really understand that baseball so much more than just a game where, where you hit a ball with a stick, you know, it is about family and it's about coming together. And when all of us reminisce, you know, on our past as it surrounds the game of baseball and it's one of the most common things across the board seems to be how many of our parents worked their asses off so we could play baseball so we could have big christmases and big birthdays so we could go to school and all of these things and it's just somehow you know when your parents bust their ass all day from work and come home and play baseball with you that little thing is so representative of so much good right? Self-sacrifice, determination, doing things for other people. And, you know, having this podcast become a little more successful during my daughter's first year of existence has made me a better, better father. I love to wake up at 2 a.m. and give her that bottle. Like I'll hold that kid until my fucking back cramps up, right? Because it's about self-sacrifice. You know, it's about family. That's all that counts over everything. And the community on The Greatest Show on Dirt on Instagram really just, it, it motivates me and it reminds me of that on a daily basis. So if you follow the page and you leave comments and you like this stuff, thank you. You're doing way more for me than I could ever do for you throughout a single post. So I'll close this up now. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care, guys. See you.